Hi, Christopher. I hope you're doing well. Um, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience and also maybe comment briefly on what is German idealism? Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sanj. This is awesome. Um, so my name is Christopher Satur. I'm a doctoral candidate, ABD, so all but dissertation. I'm finishing my dissertation right now at uh, York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, and I'm writing on um, the German idealist philosopher, uh, Frederick Schelling. Um, and I'm in a department of humanities. So I'm, I'm, my project is interdisciplinary. So I'm working on ontology, which is the study of being, cosmology, the study of the cosmos, and also aspects of how German idealism and theology mix. So German idealism is a movement of philosophical thinking and thought that uh, arose in Germany in the year 1781 with uh, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason in 1781. And the reason why it was so pivotal is that um, the, this tradition of German idealism really was uh, a point where philosophy found a middle ground that was not rationalism and not empiricism. It was something wholly different. And it was Kant that was awoken by uh, David Hume's skepticism. And his David Hume's skepticism was that, that there is no idea of the self. There's no such thing as the self or the human subject. Uh, we're just a bundle of sense data. Um, and also he threw out this theory of causation that human beings couldn't be able to understand the movement of causation and contiguity because we anticipate and we, we are habitual creatures. So if I were to ask you, is the sun going to rise tomorrow? You would probably say yes, because you expect that. You anticipate the sun rising. Um, so this woke up Kant. Kant being a, um, at the time he was an anthropologist. He was also, um, you know, dabbling in physics. Um, he wrote a, a brilliant paper on the nebular hypothesis, uh, which blew everybody away. And he decided that he would jump in on this project. And at the time he was reading um, early modern German uh, philosophers like uh, Christian Wolff, who was a philosopher um, that followed after Got Gottfried Leibniz um, and uh, Baumgarten and some other thinkers. And really when Kant took on Hume, he also took on Leibniz and, and thinker and, and English American thinker, sorry, English thinkers, not American thinkers, English thinkers like Locke. Um, and his, his approach was um, to create a kind of transcendental logic. For him, knowledge, we can have knowledge of, the knowledge that we have of the world is only in parts. We never get knowledge of the whole world that whole world um, for Kant is, it's something in itself. We can never get to it. And so for him, he created this solution, which was uh, a solution through synthetic a priori logic. And I'll stop using some of the jargon and, and, and explain some of the stuff as well too, that the world conforms to our human understanding. So the world conforms to you, Sanj. So you, you wake up in the morning, you're looking around in your room and 
that room conforms to how your mind breaks down the experience of your room. So your brain or your, the faculties break down the fact that you have a door behind you, that you maybe have a bed or a, or a, a lot or um, uh, drawers or something. So you see that as quantity, there's quantity of objects that, that fill, up, fill up space. And then there's also qualities to them. There's colors, there's textures, there's sounds. And so all of this is part of how the mind synthesizes what he calls apperception. So German idealism was a response to these, acad at these academic disciplines, you know, with the rise of um, uh, the scientific revolution, as well as the French, French revolution, all of these ideas were like freedom, um, uh, the soul and God were all up in the air. So Kant really is revolutionary. His project was revolutionary and it started this. And so thinkers like Fichte and Schelling and Hegel are really post-Kantian in the fact that they're responding to Kant, but they also break away from Kant as well. Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded. No, that wasn't, that, that, that was perfect. Um, so uh, in Kant's first critique, 1781, um, his principal argument is that all experience uh, is mediated by certain categories. Um, and that these experience, uh, experiences or categories are what enables us to regard um, what, we perceives, what we perceive as being objects of experience at all. So, you yes. know, what, what are the Kantian categories? Okay, that's a great question. So first and foremost, when Kant explains um, a particular experience, he calls it the conditions of all possible experience. Remember, we're only getting parts of that experience. He's oddly like an empirical realist, but he breaks, he breaks these experiences down. So first and foremost, the human being has two, two ontological senses. So we have something called time, which is interiority. So it's how we as beings witness causation because it's not just like clock time for Kant. Like if you get on a bus to go somewhere or you get into a car, you witness that movement from A to B and it, and it happens. Um, and, I'll, and I'll explain in regards to the, the, the categories as well too. And there's also the exterior sense, which is space. So the world outside of us although Kant wouldn't admit that there's a world outside the mind, is, is the phenomenal realm. So it's the phenomenal realm because it's, you know, as analytic philosophers say, it's, it's, where, it's where all the furniture is, um, oddly enough. <clears throat> but the, the, the categories are, the main categories are quantity, quality, relation, and modality. And so this is how it works. So if you think of these two senses, space and time, we can think of, in regards to the external sense, quantity and quality relate to that spatial realm. So the fact that there are numerous objects around you, quantity, he calls them, they're, they're, they, they fill up space, they have magnitude, and quality in the sense that they have texture, colors, um, they have intensities, so you can hear music. And this, this relates to the, the phenomenal realm. Now, in regards to the internal realm, so time, we have something called relation and modality. And relation relates to how these objects relate to the conditions of all possible experience. So the fact that I have a coffee cup here 
that it's that I understand I my cog my I can intuitively understand that it's it's in front of me and I can drink from it although that's a little a priori knowledge there but um and modality is how we think about these things so all of this is happening and being synthesized by a higher process called apperception so it's basically like the transcendental eye so he takes Descartes cogito and he makes it more he makes it the equilibrium point of consciousness I don't know was that am I going am I using two am I getting two in the Kantian Am I no, too no, no, into the perfect. world? It's it's okay. perfect. Um, categories, it seems to me, are like um, forms uh, which we think, and that they are generated by thought itself, and that they are further used to understand or interpret sensations. Um, so Kant also claims that objects are given to us in intuition. So what does that elucidate? Um, so any, any formal object that we think about, so we have intuitions about them, but that object itself has a concept. There's a concept that relates to how we understand it. So it's the, these concepts have content that are broken down by the faculties. So if we go back to my coffee cup, it's broken down through these faculties, number one, it's, qual it's quantity, right? It's one. It's quality, it's color, it's texture, the fact that it's hot, the relation of how I am related to it, I'm drinking it, and how I think about it, the fact that I'm in a podcast talking about a coffee cup to you, right? So there's these, these four things that are being elucidated by being synthesized through experience. Now, the problem here <clears throat> for Kant is that when it gets to things like you and I, human beings, and the soul and freedom, something happens. He believes they're called that God, the immortality of the soul and freedom are what he calls noumenal entities. And they're noumenal because since I only get parts of the whole, so I get a part of understanding you, I can intuit based on specific concepts that you're a rational human being but I don't know you completely inside and out. Like, I don't know everything about you. So it's kind of like the hand, right? Like, you know, the hand is made up of bones and muscle tissue and there's blood, but you only know um, how the hand is related to you. So you can pick up things with your hand, etc. So this idea here, this, this noumenal entity that he relates, he realizes that the only way that we, can understand certain things, the things in themselves, like freedom is through prax practical elements, praxis. So we can experience freedom. Uh, it's not an empirical concept for, for Kant. There is some concept to it, but it's, it has no content in the sense that it, we need to practice it. So this is what makes Kant a deontologist because freedom Ha is has to be imparted by your duty. You have to be dutiful to it. So in order for me to practice freedom, I have to respect you as an individual. I have to see you as an end in yourself and respect you as a human being. And that's all a part of the, the, the grasping of freedom for him. 
But when it comes to God, he says, you know, there, there's this element where we have to make room for faith here. This is his, his kind of Christian element that uh, he'll, he'll say, you know, with the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me, um, you know, he, he makes room for this super sensible entity, a.k.a. God. But he, he realizes that reason, you know, reason can make us think anything. So, you know, I have little nieces that love the vampire diaries and, and Twilight and all of this stuff, right? And as, you, as the older that you get, you realize that vampires aren't real and, you know, bats and all of this stuff, you know, turning into vampires aren't real. But there's an idea of that, right? There's a concept of vampire. So this is what's which Kant is trying to get, get at. The fact that reason can make us leap outside of ourselves to concepts that we have intuitions of, but there's nothing there. So does that mean that they're numinals as well too? No, so Kant makes a limitation here. There's a limitation of knowledge here. So this is what he means. Not that vampires are relatable to the human soul, but just that there has to be a limitation to um, our knowledge when it comes to these things in themselves. Uh, that's very interesting. I suppose that he meant that what is given to uh, one is not an object. What is given to one has to be thought as an object. Um, mm -hmm. And that element of objectivity as opposed to um, the immediacy of being is that element of objectivity which is supplied by the categories. Yes, <laughs> that's a that's a long-winded uh, thought, but um, seems pretty fair. No, no, but but your background is cognitive science, right? I, I I remember you talking in a space about you being into interested in neuroscience and cognitive science and stuff like that. So I can see you, you I can see you thinking thinking this through. So that's that's interesting as well, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, so exp uh, like I think it was McDowell who said that experience doesn't come in stages. Um, that is, we don't get the intuitions, then think of them. We think them as we receive them. So um, can you like comment on that? If well, Like what does that make you think of? Well, um, it's been a while since I've read McDowell. Is this, is this McDowell on Kant? Yes, yeah. Well, I see. Okay, so... You know, there's a there's a, a famous one of my favorite Kantians, um, uh, Beatrice Longuinesi, always says that there's a through line of of experience, like there's a whole process that goes into all of all of this. It it kind of means that I think of it like this, and a lot of Kantians don't like this, but this is the easiest way to explain it. It's kind of like picture your laptop. You open up your laptop when you buy it and it's already pre-hardwired, right? Like you can turn it on, I'm a PC user, so like Windows comes up or something, right? But the faculties are already there for the computer to turn on. So the, the statement about this idea of experience um, is, is Kant's whole idea that, the, that everything is kind of already presupposed. It's hardwired already within within the, the faculties of the mind. And that in a sense that, you know, that the, the um, 
that knowledge is this is this big process of of our intuitions um, responding to how the world conforms to just our basic experience um, is pretty much how I would interpret that. But this idea that that there are hardwired faculties that that it is already hardwired presupposed, um, and this is him attacking, you know. Locke's theory of the tabula rasa, you know, that, you know, um, that we're a blank slate until experience happens. Kant doesn't like that idea. He thinks that doesn't make any sense. Um, he, the fact that um, Hume thinks that we're a bundle of sense data, Kant would reply, really? So what's doing the bundling and what's maintaining all of the written notes down for the tabula rasa? So that there's a kind of hardwired innateness going on um, in regards to this whole process. And it comes down to um, Kant's whole logic. So the transcendental logic is grounded on something called the, syn the synthetic a priori. And this is a big concept, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to briefly break it down. So in philosophy, an analytic statement is when someone says something like, all, sorry to use this ridiculously overused example, but all unmarried men are bachelors. You realize that if I were to say all unmarried men are not bachelors, there's a contradiction there because all bachelors are unmarried men. They're synonymous. And the same thing applies with Frege's great example that the evening star and the moon and the morning star are the same. They both relate back to Venus. So the senses are, same, are the same here. And if you denied one that the evening star is not the morning star, then you're in contradiction. Kant does something a little different. Kant says like within a synthetic statement, the senses can be different, but still have continuity. So if we take uh, Parmenides example that uh, being and thinking are the same, right? This is a synthetic statement that's trying to talk about two predicates being equal to one. Kant's gonna extend that, that being, thinking and willing are all the same. And it's a synthetic a priori um, uh, proposition because it's already hardwired into us. This whole process of experiencing that world, of experiencing that sense data, and of how it's synthesized and broken down as the conditions of all possible experience. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question at all. No, you did. You touched upon some really great points there. Um, I kind of want to turn to Hegel now for a second, because sure. uh, I haven't really talked about Hegel on any podcast, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I feel like Hegel is broadly a Kantian um, in, the, uh, in that, that, that he has made contribution um, about thought uh, as an objectivity uh, within the categories. So, um, but I think he claims that Kant wasn't able to explain why thought operates with the categories so like he fails to derive the categories from the very nature of thought itself um, and as a result he doesn't understand them um, so what do you think why do you think uh, Hegel was thinking that Kant wasn't able to derive the categories and understand them wow so um you're uh, you're a tough uh you have these tough questions. This is fantastic. So this, wow. 
So this comes down to um, Hegel's phenomenology of spirit. And the phenomenology of spirit is a radical, radical revolutionizing of Kant. It gets rid of the noumenal entity. It gets rid of the thing in itself. And in a sense, it, it gives more freedom to thought, to thinking. So I'll give you a couple examples. In, in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, the first chapter is called Sense Certainty. And really, Sense Certainty, the first chapter, Sense Certainty, and the next chapter, Perception, are really about ratifying the problems of dogmatism in empiricism and rationalism. And so sense certainty is starting off with this kind of rational thought that if we can rationalize about an object, um, what maintains the continuity of, of, you know, the pen being here and then it not being here and, and what maintains this experience. And so Hegel doesn't want to say, well, we've got these four categories. Hegel wants to say that it starts off with self-consciousness itself, you know, both Schelling and and Hegel start off as fictions in the sense that there's a self-positing or a, a momentum of self-consciousness. But the problem here is that, that Hegel points out with Kant is that consciousness must always have an object, always. And so like, it's not just a matter of the world conforming to certain categories and then being broken down both subjectively and objectively and having two ontological poles for Hegel, there's this whole, this whole unfolding of consciousness and its concept. So that concept as the object will always be cognitive content for the agent. So this is what makes Hegel um, diff a lot more difficult to read than Kant, but also he's sidestepping certain points. So he doesn't like this hardwired understanding of the faculties. He doesn't like the fact that there's some, you know, Cartesian cogito inside there synthesizing everything as apperception. He wants us to realize that this self-positing of consciousness is itself these faculties. These faculties that are consciously aware of its content of its object. So for Hegel, it's always about the absolute idea or the absolute concept in his later um, Wissenschaftler Logique. So what he does is he shows that logic itself, relating always to a concept, unfolding from that concept. So like the next chapter on perception, he says, well, if, if we get to empiricism and my senses are, can, um, can derail me or something, just like with, with Descartes, how do we have any kind of level of understanding? And his whole point is that there's this myth of consciousness all the way up to what he calls the unhappy consciousness. And consciousness is, um, is slowly unfolding through these processes. So the historical process, the failures of rationalism. So the failure of rationalism is that everything's in your mind. You're either going to be a stoic, you're either, sorry, you're either going to be a solipsist, meaning the world is stuck in your mind, or you're going to, you're going to say that God does everything for you. So he says that needs to go. Or you're going to be an empiricist where knowledge is only grounded a posteriori. So knowledge is only grounded through your experience. And that can't work as well. And we can't rely on this Kantian 
transcendental logic either. This is the chapter called Force in the Understanding where he removes this. And so what he does is he kind of unfolds this myth of, of self-consciousness at odds with each other. And he calls it stoicism and skepticism. And he says consciousness is unhappy because it's got these two unfolding historical systems, empiricism and skepticism, sorry, empiricism and rationalism. And the stoic is happy, you know, the stoicism is happy with, you know, it has no body, it's, it's, only, it's only free aspect is thought. So there's the rationalist. And the skeptic is skeptical of everything, but only what it can feel. So there's the empiricist. And both of them, both of them need, need some kind of um, rec rectification. And so for Hegel, this is where this is where the kind of unfolding of Christianity comes in. This 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 the cognizing of consciousness having this moment of recognition. So us knowing knowing in part the processes of consciousness. I think I'm I think I'm like going all over the place here. I'm sorry. No, and now you're you're quite on a chain of thought. Um, I think Hegel claims that in order to understand those Kantian, pro, uh, Kantian categories properly um, is to derive them wrong. So the very process of derivation kind of leads to this realization of the conceivement of these categories. So I think Kant's philosophy basically takes this um, easy way in in finding of the in in the way finding of these categories, so I think that that is why uh, Hegel was being critical of Kant. He thinks that he just doesn't understand uh, those categories that he himself uh, created. Well, <laughs> which, by the way, he he just got from Aristotle. Those are just straight Aristotelian categories. But I think that I think the real important point is that. Even with Fichte, Fichte posits a, a universal I. So there's like a universal I that's posited with, that's always being self-posited within the agent. Hegel takes that for granted, that that happens. But consciousness must always have an object for him. So we can't, we can't have this process of hardwiring or we can't have this synthetic a priori um, moment within philosophy, that there, there has to be and the way that the phenomenology unfolds, it, it unfolds historically. That spirit Geist, or the Geisteswissenschaftlehrer, the human sciences unfold through this historical process from empiricism, rationalism, Greek philosophy that doesn't recognize um, the other, Christianity and this unhappy consciousness. And the, the sole fact of the unhappy consciousness, the end of the unhappy consciousness, is the point where consciousness is other, is is able to cognize, rationally cognize the other, the for itself and the in itself. And this, this, and then we slowly get into his political philosophy. So there's this whole process that he thinks that is the solving, and this is him, you know, sidestepping, not sidestepping, but moving past Kant. Because for Kant, you you could you could know the other, but only know them as a noumenal agent and know them based on how they're willing, how they're doing these things, but not, not realize, not recognize them as how, as how 
Hegel wants to present consciousness cognizing its object in this sense, the, the human agent. I think now I want to turn to your favorite philosopher, Schelling. <laughs> <laughs> so Schelling ad attempted to, let's say, integrate idealism with realism in order to create a synthesis. So can you explain who Schelling was, first of all, and what is an absolute idealism? Oh, thank you very much. Um, number one, let me apologize for the my Hegel. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have annoyed I'm pretty sure I'm going to have annoyed all the Hegelians out there going, look at this Schellingian talking about Hegel incorrectly, blah, blah, blah. Um, so Schelling is a, um, for me, one of the most profound thinkers of German idealism. He was born in 1775. And he died in 1854. And um, he was born to um, a very like spiritual, pietist kind of mystical family that were interested in the mystics. Mystics like uh, Jakob Burma um, and Oedinger and Hahn and Storr and Bangle and, and all of these, these thinkers that, that used Kabbalah and alchemy and, and uh, were interested in other, other fields of thought. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Schelling's father spoke Sanskrit, Hebrew, Latin, um, ancient, ancient Assyrian, um, and he taught all of these to his son. So at a young age, Hegel was sorry, Schelling was reading, you know, from Homer to Leibniz. So Schelling was really all about um, uh, knowledge, understanding all of these processes. And in his later philosophy, he has a philosophy of mythology where he realizes that every culture has this call to content from the Hindus or the Hindu Kush, as it's called back then to the Persians, to everything. And he doesn't have a classification. There's no hierarchy. There's no like in Hegel, Lutheran Germany, like a top and, you know, Greece at the bottom. No, everything is leveled because it's, it's, it's the way that content is um, revealed to the individual. This is, this is a good thing about, about Schelling. This makes him intriguing, but he gets caught up in, you know, the, 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 the passion of, um, of the French Revolution, and he gets in trouble. So he translates the, the French national anthem in Germany at the time, in Prussia, which was not looked upon very nicely. And, and he realized that the, the church who was running the universities at the time, he was at the Tübingen Stift, which is a seminary school, was really dominant and there was no freedom of thought. And so he started reading Kant and he, he became absolutely obsessed with Immanuel Kant. And he also uh, was reading uh, Gottlieb Fichte at the time, who he was a student of actually. He sat in um, in 75, sorry, in 95 and 96 to a bunch of Fichte's lectures. And Fichte kind of took him under his wing. But Schelling was also reading Reinhold and, and, and other thinkers that, um, that were around him. And he was actually rooming with Hegel and Holderlin in universities. So he had these great friends. And the funny thing is, this is a funny story. Schelling was a really scrawny, you know, big mouth kid that, you know, got into trouble and couldn't defend himself. So his father asked Holderlin, <laughs> the poet Holderlin, to look after him, to be kind of chaperone um, in his university days. But Schelling really takes to 
Plato at first. So he starts off as the, with these great Plato notebooks. And he gets quickly caught up by the romantics, like Novalis and Schiller and Goethe. And he realizes that the Enlightenment and even Kant made nature into a mechanical process. It turned nature into a dualism. It turned nature into this, you know, thought and then body, res extensa, res cogitans. We have this mechanical process that the entire uh, cosmos has turned into a machine. Like if you read Descartes' um, uh, Passions of the Soul, uh, he talks about, you know, dissecting animals while they're alive because he thinks they're robots. And, and this is the attitude. The attitude was human beings at the top of the chain and everything else just following. And he didn't. And Schelling hated this idea. He thought that nature itself had its own kind of reason, its own kind of autopoiesis, its own kind of organizing. And <clears throat> the reason why he has this idea of realism and idealism or realist idealism is that he, he didn't buy this argument from Hegel, but this always self-cognizing and, and having a concept. And he didn't believe in the transcendental logic. He believed that nature and the human were interwoven. And he says something really profound. He says, nature is um, visible spirit. Spirit is invisible nature, which means that there's an ideal and real aspect to nature. So <clears throat> really speaking, nature is given to us explicitly and we're given to nature implicitly. We, we experience it in, this, in, um, in an interior sense, but really there's a culmination of the two of them, that the two are like your two hands, you know? They're the same, but in different spatial locations. So he really believed that, that nature comes conscious through human beings, that everything, every kind of living organism is alive and has its own kind of spirit. And that really speaking, if you pick up a leaf, you can't see the process of photosynthesis. You can't see, you can't see sap or anything going through, through the, the leaf. Really speaking, ideally speaking, there's powers, intensities, and forces going on. And he believed that nature emerges out of the cosmos, out of the unconditioned, in this process of absolute, um, absolute productivity. So nature is this storehouse of absolute productivity. And what differentiates us, you and I, from everything else is that this stream of production bumps into a resistance. In German, it's called Anstoß. It means a check. He gets this from Fichte. And when that happens, small whirlpools are formed and we get a product out of this absolute product um, productivity. But it's no different than, say, an evergreen tree and it dropping a seed. So when a, when a tree drops a seed, right, the seed has all the identity, the information from that tree, right? It's it's different though, but it still has that identity tied to that tree. But now as it hits the soil, it's differentiated. And so Schelling sees this process, this binding between, between, um, between all living things. And so that the absolute in this sense 
is this this active process that's always unfolding and producing these living entities. And each, each thing from plant, reptile, to fish, to all the way up to human, he calls them actants. They're like living monads, <laughs> but they're, they're actants in the sense that all of them are a part of this kind of holism, this, this active unfolding process. And this is what makes him so interesting because there's no, there's no thought like this, it, you know, we have philosophies of nature um, in the Middle Ages, people like Aerogena, uh, maybe Plotinus, but they're too rationalistic. They're too, you know, um, with Plotinus, everything has to return back to the one, this, this process called epistrophe. But for Schelling, each and everything is differentiated. It has its own identity, its own different, they're, they're, they're differentiated at all, at all times. Uh, and this is kind of this is beautiful in the sense that you know. And at the time he was, <laughs> the time he was listening to Beethoven, and he was getting lost in the forest with Holderlin, and he was loving nature, and and he just realized that nature couldn't be spiritless in this mechanical process. It's not this um, generating and degenerating process. It has to be, it has to be this living entity that we're all a part of. Um, think of your eye for example. Your eye can be differentiated from every other organism on your body, but just because it's an eye inside sands doesn't mean that it's not free or its own living entity. It has its own processes, but it's still a part of this whole and differentiated. So your eye can't be the same as your mouth, right? But they are, they're different entities. I'll get to the, I don't know if you want to comment now. I was going to move into absolute idealism if you'd like, but yeah, no, I'll just comment briefly. So um, Schelling, I suppose, was best known for his work of um, integrating idealism and nature, as you we were talking about. Um, and it is predated by this strong interest in Fichte's um, subjective idealism, followed mm -hmm. by a thorough, a thorough inquiry into absolute identity and specifically the context of um, mystical freedom and mythology so mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's what i was thinking and now you can definitely dive into um absolute idealism but also like kind of comment on this mystical freedom and mythology because it's definitely very interesting so i'll do the mystical freedom at the end because shelling shelling okay i'm defending that shelling has a system right now in my dissertation but among scholars, he doesn't. He has many systems. Schelling sees his work as parts that make up a whole. So the nature philosophy makes up one part. Hegel loved this idea. Hegel loved the idea of nature being this dynamic process. And Hegel said, hey, look, I love this. We're moving away from Fichte. We kind of have our own objective idealism. And Hegel considered himself an objective idealist up to that point in his different shrift but what happens next is that Schelling turns to his, his more, um, his identity philosophy. And this is where it becomes, uh, this is where his uh, absolute, uh, absolute um, idealism comes in. Because his nature philosophy is one thing, but the identity philosophy is the second part of the whole. And so 
what Schelling was trying to show in the same way that nature has this kind of real and ideal relationship is that manifestation of the ideal and the real. So um, the best way to explain this is a painting. Schelling, Schelling's still a romantic at this time in the 1800 uh, system of transcendental idealism, but he wants to show how we're not just these fictian self-positing solipsistic entities, but there has to be, there has to be more. And so, um, do you like art? Yes, I do, yeah. Okay. Um, I love art as well too. Something happens when you look at a painting, right? Something happens. Now think about this for a second. It's an object outside of your body that moves you intensely. So it itself is a real, it's this real entity. You're like, yeah, what is it? It's this real entity, right? On a wall that moves you, ideally speaking. And so for Schelling, this moment, this mirroring moment of ideal and real is synthesized not by the object and by you, by the event. The event itself is this process where Sanj and Chris are moved by this experience of the painting. And it's not just the, it's not just the image, the image does more to you, right? The image does, you see the paint, the paint strokes. My favorite painter is Hammershoy. Um, he's a Danish painter and he, he paints these beautiful like Danish um, uh, interior rooms where there's nothing in there, but maybe his wife and always her head is always turned behind her. So it leaves the, the, the viewer wondering what she doing. That aspect, that wonder, that moment of, of you getting into the painting. So Schelling's point is that we're not, we can't be dualists like in regards to Kant, we can't be solipsists like Fichte. There is an ongoing process that manifest from ideal into real, or sorry, that real into ideal. Now I'll give you an example. The ideal and the real working together is exactly like how nature and human come together as well too. So the, that, the best way of thinking of this is, there's this term, this biological term called stereoisomers. And isomers are these it's a biological term for um, particles that are identical in every, re every respect, but are different and they're bonded. So the subject and the object are always bonded by this incoming process, this eventual process, but the event is never there. So Schelling calls this a copulative, a copulative kind of logic. So this, the world, this is why Heidegger is so moved by, by Schelling. So like this idea of being in the world, the indwelling of being. Um, so this whole process becomes this, this moment of unfolding. So the absolute for Schelling, absolute idealism is that event. It's that unfolding, that experience in that, that moment where you're staring at the painting and the painting kind of comes alive to you and you feel the painting. The absolute for Schelling holds the poles of both subject and object. So 
the absolute is what maintains its identity between the two poles. Was that all right? Did, did that, or did I get too abstract there? No, that was definitely all right. Yeah. So now we're going to get to the mythic stuff. This is the fun stuff. This is the really, really, really fun stuff. This is my favorite stuff. So Schelling was, was supposed to marry a, a young girl that was um, friends with Goethe. And her mother was um, a, a brilliant, brilliant um, writer, poet, Caroline Schlegel. And uh, at the time, all of them were living together. So Goethe, his wife, Fichte, his wife, the, Sch um, the Schlegels and Schelling, they invited Schelling to come. And Schelling fell in love with this, with Caroline's daughter. And Caroline tragically died. And um, at this point, um, you know, August Schlegel didn't treat Caroline very, very well. He was, um, there's letters from Caroline. Um, he didn't think, you know, she had a great intellect and that was totally false. Goethe loved, loved her intellect, thought she was brilliant. Same thing with Schiller. And um, she started falling in love with Schelling. And she was 10 years older than Schelling. 12 years older than Schelling. And this death brought them to, together and um, they ended up getting a divorce and she married Schelling. Now you can imagine this brought absolute scandal everywhere. A divorce in 1803? No. So Schelling had to leave his post at Jena and ended up going to Württemberg, Baden, um, and Catholic Bavaria. And in Bavaria, he met uh, a very interesting philosopher named uh, Franz von Bader, who's a theosophist. And I guess we can think of theosophists as being interested in the occult. So Franz von Bader was interested in alchemy and Kabbalah and a lot of the stuff that Schelling grew up with, but he, he kind of lost interest in. And so at this time, Schelling starts realizing that the absolute can't be this, this process that holds the subject and object poles together. There has to be something else going on. There has to be more. The absolute can't just be this, this checkpoint. It has to be a living organic being just like nature. And so he starts reading Jakob Burma and he realizes that, well, my past philosophy was too monistic in the sense that everything worked out perfectly and neatly like Leibniz, I need to show how the world is messy. And I need to talk about the differences between the finite and the infinite. And so Schelling philosophizes about the fall of humanity, just like in Adam and Eve, that he, I mean, he, he's not for that. He sees it as a myth, but he sees there's an actual, actual fall away from uh, from the absolute. And this is the interesting part. This moment of falling away is in itself for Schelling. So it's like the world as a finite entity is a mirrored image of the absolute, but it's a copy of that. So it's not perfect. It's imperfect in this moment of falling. And so this fall away from the absolute um, for Schelling makes us. Um, uh, it, it's all about 
trying to figure out how we can understand the absolute. So his philosophy at this point is how we can understand that mirrored image of the absolute. This ends up in failure. And his essay in 1804, which is, by the way, brilliant, I'll read it with you anytime you'd like, um, called Philosophy and Religion, um, ends, it, it, it completely bombs, nobody likes it. Um, even the poet Heinrich Heine was talking about how dejected, dejected um, Schelling's face looked as he walked around Bavaria. And he was attacked by everybody because he was Protestant, he wasn't a Catholic. And so he starts reading Jakob Burma, who is moved by Kabbalah. And he starts realizing that if the absolute is this being God, there can't be this falling away. Something has to happen. God has to be alive. And he has this great, great, great aspect that God is this self-developing self process that just like in Kabbalah, that God is this like moment of, of the ungrund, <laughs> this ungrounded um, lack that in its own lack needs to overcome itself. And by and this lack itself um, splits and has two principles, light and darkness. And this light and darkness are these two primordial forces um, that are, you know, congeal in all of the world. And then there's this element of Sophia with this, this she's the, the element of wisdom that's the partner of God that maintains um, uh, the element of beauty and goodness. And so Schelling takes this and he begins to philosophize about Burma's understanding. And so he realizes that instead of having this monistic system, we can understand God as an actual entity, as an actual being, the absolute. But it, it comes to us as this process of absolute indifference. Indifference because for it to be indifferent, differences can flow from it. So it's like in, in God's self-development, he produces this ground or it produces this ground nature where we come where we are formed in this primal matter, this receptacle. And in that moment, we are left in the dark because we don't have Sophia, we don't have wisdom. And um, with this aspect of no wisdom, we are left with this yearning, this yearning and craving desire to, to be, to go back to where we were before. And there's these two eternal points now, two eternal points. So there's the ground of God, God's existence and there's his essence which is you know that's the ideal and here's the real and it's outside and it's kind of there's no there's nothing that can bring the copula together nothing that can bring them together and so Schelling is is mythologizing about this idea that that in God's ground outside of well inside God we can now be different we can now be free because we're no longer just in the divine we are now differentiated from him, from God, sorry. Um, and this whole process of this, this, this lack, this Ein Sof, this Ungrund um, that he gets from Burma is an all human being. And this is the principle of evil. That evil itself isn't non-being or privation like in, in uh, other thinkers. That evil is the principle of yearning and desire of egoity. It's this principle of emptiness in a sense that it needs to crave and hold on to something like a parasite and a host. And that true 
uh, authentic individuality is centered in being, centered closer to uh, something that is aware of everything else, that it's, it's a part, it realizes it's a part of this process. And so he creates this, this theodicy, and it's this beautiful, beautiful text, which we're reading, by the way, in, in, our, in our reading group, we're reading the Freedom Essay right now, about how freedom is born from this lack, how it, er how it emerges out of this darkness, um, and that um, even, even when this ground dissipates and spirit is born in this mythology, that there's always this dark ground of spirit everywhere, that every human being, every living entity has this darkness in it. So when a weed comes up and suffocates a flower, it's this dark element. And, it, and I like this because it takes away this whole morality and value level to, to something. You know what I'm saying? So it's not like we're all born in sin. We're, we're already born in this process, this kind of this infinite lack that then is, that is differentiated and, and has its own decisive power. And real freedom is not like Kant, practice. Um, it is, it's willing, it's, you know, primal, primal being is will. So you decide your own, your own fate. Nothing is determined. You are truly free. Sorry, that went on. That was very long winded. No, but that was very concise as well. Um, I like that you were talking about a bit of, uh, Schelling's history at first with his friend group. Um, so I think at the turn of 19th century, um, Fichte uh, rejected, uh, no, Schelling rejected Fichte's uh, solipsism. And he created this premise that um, the world exists simultaneously as both of the mind and as an expression of the mind. Um, so how and why does he come to this conclusion, I suppose? Well, you know, that's funny. Um, he gets this from Holderlin, the poet. So Holderlin writes this fantastic book called The Hyperion. Uh, and Schelling was deeply, deeply just, you see, when Fichte read the, the nature philosophy, he hated it. Because for Fichte, nature is the not I, it's, it's nothing. So I'll give you an example of Fichte's philosophy. If you are a being, what makes you a being is your continual resistance, the continual resistance against you. So you have this self-positing eye and you're aware of the world because the world is not you. So the coffee cup is not you. It's not, it's not Sands, right? Or it's not Chris. So Schelling hated this idea. And so did Holderlin because they're both romantics. They're both understanding. They, they want to they wanna think about uh, nature as this, you know, flourishing process. And Schelling realized that there's something to Fichte's identity philosophy. So the identity philosophy, this logic of which we were talking about, um, bonded by the copula, like, like two sides of your hands. I don't know why I keep doing this. I apologize. Um, he likes this idea, but he wants to give more to the objective pole, right? So there's a sub subjective pole and objective pole. But for Fichte and for Holderlin, for you to remove that aspect of the world is to go back into Kantianism in the strict sense. Either there is no world and we're back in a limit, limiting of knowledge or there is an external world 
and we need to go out and investigate this. And this is the break, this is the final breaking moment. And so <clears throat> in 1801, Schelling released something that uh, deeply offended Fichte. It was his 1801, My Presentation of the System. And in it, he follows Spinoza, believe it or not. He follows Spinoza's kind of proposition corollaries and, and uh, demonstrable demonstrations. Um, and in it, he, he posits a kind of realist idealism like in his nature philosophy. Um, and he extends Fichte's philosophy. However, the not I, the object and the subject will then be held again, held in check by absolute, um, absolute identity or absolute indifference to maintain their differences, to hold this in, in check. Um, and then he gets into the freedom essay and he removes this whole theory. But this deeply offended Fichte. Fichte was deeply deep. And if you wanna, if you wanna um, have a good laugh one night, you, maybe you're feeling down, uh, I'll send you the, the letters between Schelling and Fichte. And they're hilarious because Fichte's just like, how dare you? I spent my whole life on the Wissenschaftler, the science of knowledge. This is true science. This is true human science. And you're turning it away. How dare you, you immature child? Like, and Schelling's just like, all right, dude. No, no, no. I like Beethoven. Go back and listen to like, um, what, I don't know, some, some ancient mid, um, Renaissance, whatever musician. It's so funny. It's, it's like, it's, it's like, us talking to our parents or something. And he's just going, no, 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 no. I'm going to do my own thing and create my own, my own philosophy and theory. And he breaks away too. And so does Hegel. Hegel breaks away from, from this Fichtean philosophy. And Fichte is actually fired in 1799 from, from Berlin for threat of atheism. And, uh, but he, he continues teaching. He continues you know, teaching in these private uh, seminars and stuff like that. But Schelling moves on. Schelling actually had a really sad life, actually. Um, Hegel turns on him in the Phenomenology of Spirit. He calls this um, absolute indifference, the night where all cows turn black, because he thinks there's no differentiation between subject and object. He thinks everything is just this kind of melting pot, this, this hodgepodge of everything. And he really, no, he never understood um, the logic. And the whole world picked up on this, like all of, all of Prussia picked up on this, this argument and, and he eclipsed Schelling and um, Hegel kind of moved onward. And at the time before Hegel was famous, um, Schelling gave him his Jena post in 1803 when he left with Caroline and was sending you know money and giving him uh, tutoring positions. So Schelling felt it a, a really big backstab. And then, of course, Goethe and Schiller all surrounded Hegel, and he kind of felt like alone. And then after the freedom essay, Caroline died, and Schelling just went through a massive depression. And he started getting into seances and the spirit, spirit world. And he starts get, getting back into Jakob Burma and all of this mystical um, philosophy, which is absolutely excellent. Um, and systematic as well too, and he he sees life as you know, you know, all life. Even he'll say something. This beautiful passage that's my favorite that I always put on Twitter. That even nature understands 
that a layer a blanket of blanket of melancholia that it's not just human beings that feel sadness that even nature feels sadness sorry i went off on a tangent there no but that's so beautiful um that particular quote um I guess Schelling was um, first introduced to Goethe at a social gathering in Schiller's house. Um, and he was very interested in Schelling's account of teleology as an intrinsic force um, governing not only the mind, uh, as Cantor proposed, but also nature. So can you maybe dive deep into Schelling and Goethe's relationship and their eventual break. Yes. By the way, you're an excellent host. This is fantastic. These are great questions. You really did your research. This is great. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Schelling started writing um, essays in 1794. His first big essay was called On the, on the Timaeus. And to this day, like even later on, Schelling likes the cosmological story in the Timaeus, the, this idea that there's a receptacle and the demiurge is this, this essence that's helped help shaping the cosmos and creating certain things. But in 1795, he starts writing a lot of essays, one that's closely like Fichte, but other, other um, really interesting essays, one called um, on dogmatism and criticism, and it's Schiller that first reads uh, Schelling and is very interested in Schelling. And in 1797, when Schelling released his ideas for a philosophy of nature, this is where he says, nature is visible spirit, spirit is invisible nature. Um, Schiller is also moved again. But Goethe is kind of like, eh, all right, he's a new guy, he's coming up, that's fine. But when Schelling releases his second text called um, On the World Soul. And in the World Soul, <clears throat> Schelling talks about a process called light and gravity. And it's kind of like the same thing that happened when I was talking to you about the Ein Sof and the... He sees gravity as this contractive force this contractive force that pulls inward into its own interiority and light being this expansive force, but together the two are on, you can't think one without the other, they're bound together. And so Schiller showed this essay to Goethe in 1798 and it moved Goethe completely because at the time Goethe had, had also published work on, on um, colors, he had a theory of colors, he also had something called the metamorphosis of plants. And so he had an understanding that there, that there is this kind of uh, process of ontogenesis going on. There is a, a genetic, um, see in, in Kant's last critique, he stated that nature has a, has a process of autopoiesis, but because we have no conscious content of it, because it's a thing in itself, we don't understand it, it's, it seems kind of sublime to us. It, we can't get at it. And Goethe goes further. Goethe talks about life processes in this rich struggle for uh, in contraction and expansion and attracting stimuli. 
and um, it moved Schelling as well too. And the two of them finally met in 1798. Goethe invited Schelling to take the, the post uh, at Jena, making him the youngest professor in German history. Do you know who beat him? Nietzsche. <laughs> Nietzsche was 21, Schelling was 23. So um, he, he gets there, he's, in, he's with Goethe. And, uh, <clears throat> and in this whole um, process, Schelling makes a kind of dynamic atomism. He doesn't want to get rid of the mechanical aspect of nature, like this mechanical processes, but he wants to dynamize it. So he binds together the, you know, the kind of rep, rep, the repetition of processes, but he also wants to talk about this kind of dynamic entity, of, of the dynamic part about them. The fact that, you know, trees can bend this way towards the light, that, that um, certain, certain plants will form an ooze um, around uh, um, uh, things that are trying to, to destroy it, um, you know, uh, pests that are trying to get at it. And so they really bond, uh, they really get a, a kind of, they bond into a friendship. And it's because of Goethe's help, I guess, and also Schelling reading um, um, Herder, that he extends this theory and his theory becomes more, more solidified in his 1799 uh, treatise, A First Outline for a System of the Philosophy of Nature. And it really is from Goethe that Schelling gets this idea that, that out of, that nature emerges out of the unconditioned. So it, it moves out that way. And that it really is this absolute productivity, that everything is kind of in this dynamic process, that each um, living being is an actant in the sense. So like Bruno Latour's actor network theory, you could say, you know, everything has its, its, its uh, direct response. Everything is a part of this kind of packaged whole for Schelling. And then he comes up with this theory of potencies. So everything unfolds in a matter of three processes. And you can see this in all German idealism. Everything it comes in threes. <laughs> Kant calls it the, the propedetic, the, the, or sorry, the apodictic, the, the logically, certain method, logically certain method. Hegel, Fichte calls it the dialectic. Hegel then calls it also the dialectic. Schelling calls it the potencies. So we have these potencies. The first potency is, is the forming of primal matter, the, the way that atoms and everything kind of form and solidify. So Schelling makes fun of um, Lucretius because Lucretius said that, you know, atoms have this um, uh, clinamen, this like they swerve. Um, and when they swerve, they bump into things and that's how matter forms. Schelling's like, no, 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 that's not, what going, that's not what's going on. What's going on is, Matter is being is both both contracts and expands and condenses in together and they they form and so what we get is prime matter emerges from the unconditioned and then after that all of these intensities and and forces are formed galvanization uh, chemical processes magnetism all of this all of this helps um, and at the time both Goethe and Schelling were traveling and. <laughs> We're going through lectures and listening to, you know, physics physicists and and scientists at the time, and Schelling called his philosophy speculative physics, because he was speculative. Um, he was being speculative and philosophical about about physical 
um, uh, matter, sorry. It's that time for a second coffee. <laughs> Never too late for a second coffee. <laughs> um, so Schelling's philosophical view then demonstrates the scientific understanding as well as this artistic intuition um, that plays out in opposition to one another. So why does he think so, I suppose would be a good question. Good point. Well, you know, philosophers have always had this, we get into this position where we start philosophizing from the view from nowhere, never from the view in itself. And so we can either, we have three options. We can be rationalists again, where we rationalize through reason and the higher faculties and cognize everything. We can be empiricists and 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 not understand and, and understand everything empirically, or we could be like Kant, where we limit these two ontological um, centers of experience. The problem here that Schelling points out, very, um, which I think is a very intuitive and articulate point, is that we're already in nature; we are a part of nature. So my identity, the, the makeup, my genetic makeup is no different than everything else there. You know, that, that, there's that cheesy statement by Carl Sagan that we're all stardust. Um, but in a sense, we're made up of the same identity, right? The same absolute identity or the same absolute indifference that allows for this difference to occur. And if that's the point, if that is what's going on, then initially, what makes me different than a tree is that I'm, you know, according to Schelling, I'm conscious. And this consciousness happens through a process. So nature is conscious. It's conscious through these unfolding of these potencies. But the problem here is that so there's more to me, right? There's more to a human being than just its, its meat and, and bones. There's a cognitive process. There's something going on in consciousness. So there's a real Chris and an ideal Chris. And so Schelling extends that reason to nature. And in this sense, he brings the two together. So nature and human, nature and animal, nature and plant, everything comes, merges together. They form a cohesive whole, a dynamic whole. And in that, it's like, if you were to, you know, if we could do this, let's say we could, we have this magic magic wand, we can cut me open, you can see my, what makes me tick, we can see consciousness. That would be the ideal process. That would be the interiority, my, inter, my inner interiority. And my exteriority is my body. So Schelling says the same thing must happen at this, that this dynamic level to, to even to trees. So if we cut them, if we cut them open, we see its real content, but then we'd be able to see the forces and the intensities that make this a living entity. And that the, he holds this distinction of the real and the ideal. I always wondered if uh, Lacan had read uh, Schelling because Lacan has this real and ideal as well too. And, and there's, there's, an un, there's a philosophy of unconsciousness as well in Schelling as well too. It's, it's interesting. He was one of the first people to posit the unconscious. So the, the funny thing is, is that if nature is 
visible spirit, visible spirit in the sense that it's real and spirit is invisible nature, then it is both real and ideal at the same time, just like human beings. So we are enmeshed into one kind of fold. Uh, and I saw that you're reading Deleuze, so you should know that he sees the world as folds, and so does Schelling. Schelling sees everything as folded, and that real lines of flight or real dynamic processes are unfolding. So um, when something is constricted, when something, I'll talk in Deleuzean sense for you, when something is constricted and it's it's held in check, um, Deleuze calls this um, a, a, a process of, um, oh my gosh, why am I, I'm blanking on this. It's like a tree. He calls it arborescence. It, it, it breaks off lines of flight. Schelling says the same thing. If something is restricted, it has no freedom. And freedom is the alpha and the omega of all philosophy. It has this, it needs this capacity to, ex, to expressivity. And so nature must have that as well. And so there's this, this dual process that's in all individuals, even plants as well too. And me who loves nature, I love this idea because I think trees and plants and, and animals are all conscious. I think they're totally conscious on a maybe a different level than humans, but still conscious. Yeah, I think I think the same. I think it's very plausible. Um, I just hope that the scientific community at some point just makes it the fact um, that these uh, trees and things are actually conscious. So to conclude, um, Schelling argued that the subjective selfhood addressed by Fichte um, and the infinite substance of Spinozism are identical. So yep. why Perfect. and how? You said, it, you said it perfectly. Why and how? Why and how? Ooh. Tough questions. Um, well, in a sense, it's the same. It's Okay, in a sense, it's the same kind of, well, number one, he is a Spinozist for a very long time, and he is a, and he is a, a follower of Fichte. And, in, and he does think that he's a part of this tradition of German idealism, so he wants to work with the tools that he has, meaning the theories that he has. But Fichte is too limited in the sense that Fichte is too idealist, and Spinoza is too realist. And so the only way to have a true, um, a true kind of creative process would be to have a realist idealism. And he says this beautiful quote. He says, idealism is the spirit of philosophy, the soul of philosophy, and realism is its body. And only the two coming together can form a whole of reality. He says that in the Freedom Essay which is one of the most beautiful passages in the history of philosophy for me. And so essentially it's the same thing that we were discussing, that we can't just have this ideal aspect of Chris. We need both the real and the ideal to form a cohesive unit, to form that dynamic process. And the same thing with nature, just because we only see the real, like this is a, this is a point that Schelling's making, that in Kant's world, we only see the real. In Fichte's world, we only see the real. Schelling is enforcing us. He's, he's challenging us to see both the real and the ideal, to see more, 
if there is more in the human, it's logically plausible that there must be ideals as well in, in both plants and everything else. And this is, this is why so many environmental thinkers like Ian Hamilton Grant and Sean McGraw and some other people are reading Schelling. And that's why he's having a renaissance right now because a lot of environmental thinkers are realizing the potential of this, of this philosophy. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with Fichte's idea, Fichte's um, the way that we self-posit in regards to consciousness and this self-positing universal I and this, this process that posits that content. But when it shuts off and closes off the world, we have a problem. And Spinoza's model is fantastic. He's got this monistic system of the cosmos, Deo Siva Natura, God is nature, where we are modifications of that substance. There are an infinite amount of attributes. And at the same time, we have two, two um, attributes, thought and extension. But in this model, as modifications of God, and that's it, there's only a realist, there's only the realism. There's no, there's not the idealism. And so we can have that cosmological model. We can have this Deo Siva Natura, God or nature, but we also need to include the Fichte and we also need the Jakob Burma. We need the kind of mystical content as well too. We need all three of them to form this, this picture. And this is what made him so revolutionary and why I absolutely love this philosopher and why so many people rebelled against him because he went against every kind of formal tradition. He went against the Protestant tradition. He went against the Catholic tradition. He went against all of these things. And he was bringing the science of his time and philosophy of his time and the mystical age of his time. And later on, every kind of mythical thing that he could get on. He, he, was, reading, he was reading about uh, Confucianism and Taoism. He was reading about Hinduism and Buddhism. He was reading all of these things and calming them together and seeing how not just in the Christian world, but in every other part of the world, that there is this, this binding together of ideal and real and how we mythologize about that content. You know, the Big Bang happened. We, we, can, we can assume that the Big Bang happened, but because we never experienced that event, we as humans want that, we want, we want knowledge of that ancestral event, right? And so the best way to fill in that empty content is through mythology. And so if you open up, like I'm, I'm, I was born in a kind of Christian family, um, if you open up the Bible where it talks about God as a spirit hovering over the void, this is a mythos that's filling in that empty content that we don't have answers to. And this happens in every civilization. You can open up a book and everyone has an origin story. And Schelling's point is, you know, that all of this comes together as a, a system of revelation, and not revelation in the Christian sense, revelation of consciousness, revelation of, of reality, of a living reality. It always has to be a living reality for him. It can never be this dead-end kind of monism. But that's the best kind of answer to think about, that it's both a realism and idealism synthesized together. It's, it's, like, it's like having the best of Kant, the best of Fichte, the best of, well, best of Hegel, and Spinoza all into one with a little bit of the Yaka Burma in the background and Kabbalah and alchemy and having this, this fantastic model. I think that's, that's my answer, I guess. Sorry if I'm, if I'm a little vague or anything.
No, you no, you weren't vague at all. Um, I, I'm always fascinated about the synthesis of realism and idealism. It's it's deeply uh, very intriguing um, and 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 a beautiful thing to think about. Um, well, thank you for coming on to the podcast and 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 talk about like so many things that I have to like <laughs> grasp. Uh, it will well, take me a good amount of time. Sorry. Thank you for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Of plus, course. you're also plus you're also my friend on Twitter, and and and, and it's it's good to see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you so.